0: Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. You can now follow us on Twitter, at Let It Cast, and we'd love to hear what you think, so don't be shy about tweeting at us or commenting on our website. This week... Author Jesse Jarno joins Nate to talk about his book, Heads, a biography of psychedelic America. In this episode, Jesse connects the dots from the initial explosion of psychedelia in the 1960s all the way to the 21st century with the Grateful Dead and their burgeoning audience as the connecting thread. Listen and learn how the dead, the internet, hip-hop culture, Keith Haring, electronic dance music, jam bands, and Burning Man all interconnect. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's
1: time to let it roll. This is your host, Nate Wilcox, and I'm joined once again by guest Jesse Jarno to discuss his book, Heads, A Biography of Psychedelic America. Jesse, welcome. Cool. Thanks for having me back, Nate. Yeah, it's a pleasure. This was a really interesting book. I mean, it's a very ambitious topic to do a biography of. How did you decide to... How did you decide this topic, and how did you decide on which people to focus on because as as awesome and comprehensive as this, obviously you didn't talk about every acid head in american history right
2: <laughs> um yeah those are those are both fairly uh i guess big questions the big the 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 reason i I chose to do it is is because sort of it was just a you know a story that I didn't really know in its most complete way and there was no real place to to just be able to sit down and and, and read that story. That story being the history really of psychedelics beyond the sixties and seventies and kind of connecting to this present moment where there's you know, this, you know it was just sort of this story that that, that I I wanted to read that is not really available, which is the story that the the sixties and the seventies kind of through to this this, this present moment um, that, that people are sort of calling kind of like a psychedelic Renaissance, but my main argument in some ways is that that has been going on for the last, you know, half century pretty much continuously. Um, and so there are all these stories about the sixties and seventies that are really well documented and, and in a bunch of really great books, you know, the electrocool Kool-Aid acid test being kind of the big obvious one. Um, but then the trail kind of disappears in the in the early seventies, you know, when this group, the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, who were kind of the big acid makers and big acid distributors, um, get busted. Or ostensibly get busted anyway. That's, you know, it was there's was definitely a big, huge, you know, multi multi sting bust that happened in nineteen seventy two. But sort of one of the things that I I figured out is that that loose network that they had kind of created, um carried on in a bunch of sort of ad hoc ways, um, straight through in basically to the end of the 20th century. Um, so that story is, is what I wanted to do is really connect that, you know, the the psychedelic explosion of the sixties to the present psychedelic moment. And in the middle is, is kind of, is, is the, the grateful dead who are, you know, sort of the mainstream of psychedelic America for for really many of the the, the decades in between those points, and um, and really the, the 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 peak of psychedelic use in the United States, or the peak of LSD use in the United States, I should say, is tied very much with um, with the Grateful Dead's world. Uh, the, the 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 peak of LSD use in this country from the early seventies up until now uh, is 1995 and 1996. Um, right at the very end of the Grateful Dead's career, right before, right before Jerry Garcia died. And then the, the, he died and kind of the, the networks began to sort of dissipate. Um, so yeah, p- piecing all of those things together. And I, I guess the ways that I chose who I focused on, um, were, there were a, a bunch of different ways. Uh, for starters, I, one thing that was really important to me was to not just reiterate the story of the sixties and, you know, Oh man, you know, just kind of the the cliche stories of, of LSD and its rise and, and, you know, semi fall. Um, So I didn't focus a lot on, on Timothy Leary, who's, you know, who's, who's his story has been, been told over and over and over again. And, and I think actually doesn't, connect in a lot of ways to what happened later on. So, you know, a, a lot of my choices and my focus were were kind of about we're kind of finding characters that I could use to to build the build historical bridges basically um between different eras. So that was one that was one way that I chose people. Another was just ways, you know, the the people I could find and the people who were, who were willing to talk to me and and some of the people that just kind of emerged almost magically in my path um, as I was researching. Um, You know, I I, I tried to find people who represented different levels of the psychedelic world. You know, I tried to find people who were, you know, dealing actual hits of acid, you know, on the street or in, in, you know, in the Grateful Dead parking lot. And I wanted to find people who were, you know, kind of the people who were taking, you know, the raw acid and turning it into blotter paper. And I, you know, and I wanted to find you know, chemists higher up, you know, and I, I got fairly far up the chain in terms of being able to find different people to represent different parts of the story, or, to, you know, just to tell different parts of the story from from their experience. Um,
1: and it's but, a big, sprawling book. And, I, and and yet it's got a coherent narrative. And I, and I love the choice of the dead. Because your point about the highest use of acid and of LSD in American history being the early nineties. That's not something we're generally aware of. If, if you were a hipster in the, in the eighties or nineties, even if you didn't like the dead, it was very hard to ignore their mass audience and the fact that LSD followed everywhere they went. And, you know, even for a punk rocker like myself, uh, the butthole surfers were essentially sort of a weird variant of the Grateful Dead in the eighties. And as much as the two cliques sort of saw themselves as opposed, they were really very similar. And and you know, the buttholes were one little eddy that spun off of the dead. And and I love the way in the book that you connect the dead to the whole jam band thing and through the vehicle of fish mostly. Um, but but their cultural and musical influence is manifest. I mean, even, you know, the dead is somebody that got so much critical hate uh, in the 60s and 70s, and were really basically dismissed by most mainstream cultural observers in the early 70s, like you said, the trail just goes cold here. And psychedelia was seen as something that had happened and was in the past and was over and was a mistake. And yet, meanwhile, millions of Americans, many more than turned on in the 60s, are tripping their balls off and discovering these new worlds and enjoying this psychedelic renaissance and suffering the uh, consequences which you don't shirk.
2: Right, Right, right. I mean, you know, one of the, the 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 cool secret histories about psychedelics in the United States is that the punk scene picks it right up in the late seventies. You know, in the in the mid seventies. You know, pe- you know people like Richard Hell and Tom Verlaine from from television. Definitely, you know, acid heads in their in their early days. Patty, you know, Patty Smith, definitely, you know, very psychedelic stoner type. You know, and 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 there's a great not, not dishonoring the dead either, for that matter.
1: No, you've got a great anecdote about a young Patty Smith trying to storm the stage and get in front of the microphone. <laughs> right, right,
2: right. But <laughs> a then, dead but show. So but, so, but then what was really lovely to discover was that that thread just continues, like, in parallel to the Dead. There's this whole parallel thread of kind of psychedelic punk going on. You know, you see it in the early 80s with, with the Meat Puppets and the Butthole Surfers and and Sonic Youth, Um I'm not sure that the, the buttholes were ever necessarily deadheads, but Sonic Youth and the Meat Puppets definitely have you know strong, strong dead, dead love within their bands. So, and the
1: and the Black Flag of all bands oh. was the biggest deadheads uh, of any of the that era of punk musicians I know of, even though their audience didn't really cross over much if right. at all.
2: And that was one of the things that I that I came to love. You know, I. I I've, there are many reasons why I love the Grateful Dead, but but in discovering that was enough made them made me love the Dead even more. Discovering that sort of punks and and underground scenes of of all stripes, like well beyond well beyond kind of the jam world, had in the Dead this kind of anarchistic DIY psychedelic model so even if the dead are kind of this big trundling you know stadium rock band by the 80s and 90s that are you know definitely not as yeah the dead were not definitely not as hip like in that in that cool underground sense of the word that they were you know they were that in in the 60s and and probably into the early 70s but by the late 80s and 90s they were definitely no longer that but we're still intrinsically connected to kind of that spirit you know that, that that there was still something about their world that connected to to just utter non-mainstream craziness even if that wasn't necessarily represented in their music um, and that's sort of the way that they continue into into the 90s and and the jam the jam world is is one offshoot of that but the, like the thing is the dead were kind of the center of this counterculture that went just so far beyond music that they were just this you know they were just this beacon that Supported all of these different scenes in the sense that if you were, you know, a non-deadhead and you wanted to experiment with psychedelics, or uh, the, the dead scene was there to kind of provide that, and the dead scene was also like just this permanent and still is. I'll, I'll point out this kind of permanently roiling mass of like kind of open ears and people who are like excited about weird shit, <laughs> you know. So. Yeah. There's still an audience that you know, like I still talk to young bands, and they're like, "Man, we just got you know, they they want to tap into that kind of that deadhead energy, and that deadhead energy is sort of a thing that's like almost, in some ways, separate from the music in a lot of ways. Um, it's it's ceaselessly fascinating to me the, the just the dead psychedelic phenomenon and the way they kind of orbit around each other, you know.
1: Yeah, and and I think you do a great job of bringing in these different threads—the early internet pioneers, who many of whom were Deadheads. John Perry Barlow, the Dead's lyricist, obviously was a, a manifesto writer for early internet culture. Um, and then you know uh, the electronic dance music scene coming out of India from Deadheads on the beach, and 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 into England with uh, Gilbert Goa—is how you say his name?
2: Oh, oh, go, uh, Goa Gill.
1: <laughs> yeah, Goa Gill. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Man, and that that's- was totally new to me and and fascinating but i want to i want to talk about two things in the 60s before we move on the first is as a texan and a punk rocker uh, you know i fly the 13th floor elevators flag when i first looked through the book and i didn't see him in the index you know i was shaking my fist at, at your new yorker but then <laughs> uh, you know here on page 19 you talk about the elevators and and give a pretty succinct description of why they crashed and burned so fast and you've got a paragraph you know and, th- and these are literally they were the first band to be associated with the term psychedelic in print. They started a year before the dead. They played, they went to San Francisco and, and played in the dead and Moby Grape and, and Janice Janis they were friends with Janis Joplin from Texas and many at Chet Helms and many of the San Francisco scenesters. And they made a big impact on the scene, sort of as showing these folkies, how a rock band works. But within a year, their leader is psychotic or their front man is psychotic. And within three years, they're, three leaders are all either on the run or in prison or in a mental institution. And yet you say, you point out the grateful dead succeed where the elevators fail in part because they are meshed so deeply in California, already a liberal safe haven. And in part because they are reared in the safety net of the emerging psychedelic religion. It provides them with a function and a source of income. And, and that gets into the whole, what Jerry Garcia called hip economics and one aspect of the 60s that you do cover is the way that Stanley Owsley aka bear financed the dead with his LSD money
2: yeah 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 I mean that it's you know you see that you see that flow kind of between between this you know kind of the basically the drug dealing world and the, the music world really frequently throughout um different scenes you know I, you know the elevators I the elevator scene. I wish I could have spent more time with. There's, an, I mean, you, you may well have read it, but there's also an amazing, like, very deep, long book about that. Uh, Mine, I mind? I mind. Yeah, by, uh, by, yeah. that's by a by great Paul book. Drummond, which is which is. I'm hoping to get in in him on the show. Detail. Um, but yeah, no, the, the dead were 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 part of like an ecosystem that worked for them, and California was such a big, important part of that. Um, just the world that they were situated in. Another band that I I. I not even sure I got a real mention of them in, um, which is the MC five who were, you know, kind of the, the, equivalent of like the, the elevators and the dead, except in, in Michigan, um, in the Detroit, Detroit and Ann Arbor, who also went through a ton of really awful stuff. You know, John Sinclair, who is their manager and kind of guiding light ended up in jail for a few years and they, they sort of veer off course after, you know, after a while, um, But the fact that the dead had Owsley, the fact that the dead had, you know, each other is is really important. They were like, especially in the early days, like they were, you know, they were minds that were connected. Um, That was something that that Peter Stample told me that really sticks with me. Uh, Peter Stample from the, the Holy Modal Rounders. Uh, responsible for the first use of psychedelic in a recorded song uh, early in 1963, 1964. Um, and so he was, you know, he was way into folk music and way into psychedelics and, and way into rock and roll and really expected to love the dead. He was like, that's the band that I'm going to be, I'm going to, these guys are for me. And he saw them, or he heard their records and was just, he didn't connect with them at all. And then he finally saw them live and he said just the 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 seeing them together on stage and just the way that they clicked as people, he said that was just, I think the, the phrase he used was just like, off the charts powerful. Um, and that's, you know, that's, a, that's another really important part of it is that, you know, the Grateful Dead were part of, you know, like sort of triggered this long running phenomenon. But at the core of it, we're a really tight band, both both. Really, you know, socially and and intellectually, but and in the early days, musically too.
1: <laughs> and also, Jerry Garcia is a seer in many ways. I mean, you know, I always dismissed him when I was a young, callow punk rocker as you know a hippie idiot, and and look what he came to a bad end. And he got popular even when he didn't want to, and all this stuff. But the more I've learned about Garcia, especially when you quote him, talk about hip economics, and he he basically mapped out the whole way that the underground economy around the Grateful Dead would work long in advance as a conscious thought and he he was into you know we, people got to figure out a way to get money velocity going around to get money <laughs> passing from one person to the other so somebody's selling t-shirts somebody else is selling pots somebody else is selling sandwiches you know and 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 people are getting together and then they more of them have cash to go to the, get gas and go to the next show and it's it's really amazing i mean the more i've learned about garcia Um, and you know, this book was really invaluable in enhancing that the, the the more an impressive figure he becomes, although, you know, even though he made a conscious decision in the early seventies to kind of back off from rock stardom and keep the dead underground, it ultimately they failed and they get to a point where they're playing stadiums and realize that they can't get any bigger, even though the audience is there to do more than stadium shows. I mean, do you view that as like a nightmare or a triumph?
2: probably both, but I would say probably closer to a nightmare, mostly given Garcia's, just Garcia's fate. The fact that he, you know, he, he got sick. He became, you know, he was, he was, he was an addict and that, uh, you know, he ultimately didn't serve him very well. Um, but Jerry, you know, Jerry was a, was really a brilliant guy and a really articulate thinker. Um, and, was able to, yeah, like like he said, was able to sort of think things through and, and map a lot of things out. But I don't think that that notion that they, the dead would be at sort of the only thing rolling <laughs> at the center of it, I, I, I don't think that was in his equation. I think, you know, I think when he's talking about this notion of hip economics and this notion of, 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 of you know, the scene that supports itself, he was speaking, I think, from his experiences probably in the early days of the counterculture and kind of, you know, sort of the, the peak years of, of the Hate ashbury where that was how things were functioning. It wasn't just an idle thought. It was that Owsley's money was funding the dead and that, you know, probably every band had a pot dealer that they were buddies with who had, you know, loose income that, that could then, you know, be used to buy amps or, you know fix fix the van or whatever you know whatever whatever thing needed to be done you know drug dealers had had you know had expend had expendable cash basically yeah so i i I think the idea that the that all those things could go together to create a counterculture was remained pretty paramount in jerry's mind i think you know as long as that is you know into the probably into the 70s you know the dead were still very um ambitious in what they were doing the dead did sort of go underground in some ways but you know they started their own record label they built this enormous and expensive uh sound system that, that we now call the wall of sound um they, they, that you know, owsley they, built
1: and designed well
2: sort of owsley owsley sort of had the psychedelic vision for it and was you know kind of dictating some parts of it but the wall of sound was created by a lot of different people up uh, Primarily, uh, in my understanding, um, Ron Wickersham at Alembic was kind of the, the the visionary guy who actually was able to take and Dan Healy, who's uh, who's the the Grateful Dead's long long time sound guy, were kind of the people who were able to take Bear's ideas about like oh you know about every instrument having its own representation and then translate them into actual actual you know practical use. Uh, so Bear Bear was the inspiration. His his acid money was long, long, long gone by that point. So he wasn't really a financial source for the wall of sound. I see that get reported some places, but that's 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 not true. The dead the, the dead the dead's constant touring was the source of the wall of sound. And actually the dead kinda hit that same point in nineteen seventy four that they hit in nineteen ninety five, really where it, it got too big. And it was they by that point, you know, they weren't playing, well, giant stadium hadn't been built yet at that point, And rock and rock shows really hadn't migrated fully into, into like sports stadiums. But that's what, that's where the dead were in, in 1973 and 1974 to finance, to finance the wall of sound. And it became too big for them then. And, and Garcia basically, you know, pulled the plug in 19, in, 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 at the end of 74 and the dead the dead kind of broke up for a year. They, you know, they, they, I mean, they never they never actually disbanded and they, they kept working on stuff, but they stopped touring um, and, and they and, you know,
1: and they came and, back stronger. There's two pieces before we well, leave the early 70s, ways,
2: but well, just, musically, on, I just want to finish the parallel, though, uh, go which is that that is also what happened in 1990, the early 90s, after the dead had this huge number one hit where it got too big. And there's, you know, they're basically playing the biggest possible places they can to sort of keep everything financed. And Garcia got really sick of it by then as well. And, you know, there's in the grateful dead bios, there's, you know, him basically talking about, this is a really like sucky way to, to, you know, try to make art is, you know, doing it in baseball stadiums for gazillions of people and, Unfortunately, by that point, the dead were kind of too locked into their thing, and Garcia's addiction was was kind of at that point in a really bad place in the early '90s, and and they weren't able to stop. But there was a lot of talk in those last few years of like t- really taking like a year or two off and trying to let things cool out a little bit. So I think to to wrap back to what you were starting with, I think that you know, hopefully that would have happened at a certain point.
1: Yeah, quite likely. It's time for to jump in with our first song, and this is the first single that the uh, Grateful Dead released on Warner Brothers, "The Golden Road to Unlimited Devotion." That was a taste of the Dead's first single, which I think is universally agreed to have not captured their sound. It wasn't a hit. Um, I've, I kind of enjoy it, but um, it's very atypical of the Dead, and, and their struggles to come to terms with the studio is like a staple of Dead biography and something that's been covered elsewhere. But I wanted to get into what you document, which is the emergence of the tapers. and And you pretty much track down you know Marty Weinberg and and people like that, that that were some of the first people to get sophisticated with taping and the way the Dead allowed that.
2: Yeah, um, sort of allowed it. Allowed it in a in a at first a very passive way. Um, there are definitely lots of stories of the early days of the Dead being kind of negative about tapers. Um, you know, there's you know, Owsley certainly despised tapers in the early days, um, mostly because he thought they weren't doing a good doing a good job with it um and just assume that they were you know buying like a cheap tape machine at the you know at the store and recording on bad condenser mics or whatever um but yeah the the dead tapers really began to evolve this technology and um i think there was i think it was a it was a very it was a debate within the dead for a good 10 or 15 years really kind of from the uh from the late '60s into the early, into really into the early '80s, it was it was kind of this this, this tense thing within the Dead World. Um, I didn't get to talk to him for the book, but since I, I've gotten to interview Dan Healy, uh, who, who I said was the Dead sound guy, and he said that within the Dead there was this, there were tapers and there were non-tapers, like within the Dead, you know, within the Dead themselves, and the the people who were tapers within the Dead kind of understood that impulse and. Jerry Garcia was one of those people. He um I had to, to cut out a long section uh describing his cross-country journey in the summer of 1964 as a bluegrass tape collector. Um literally driving from California to Indiana to to hang out in a guy's basement and hook up reel to reels and and copy bluegrass tapes and 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 then go see people like Bill Monroe and the Osborne Brothers um and make his own make his own tapes. Um, but he was doing it um to learn the music he wasn't doing it necessarily because he was a completist His, the, the, in the the notion of bluegrass tape collecting was so you could kind of like pick up the licks that cuz you know solos could go on longer you know there's the repertoire was bigger it was you know easier to slow down than records probably um but he understood that so by the late '70s, it kind of tipped over to the point where there were like too many tapers to really deal with. There's lots of tapes of the early '70s, actually, of like the Dead's crew guys. Like you can hear them, you know. Oh, you'll have to give me those tapes. <laughs> like you know, basically, and then the tape cuts off in the middle. So the, the balance really shifts in the late '70s, and it's actually kind of the right point, also economically, for the Dead to do that. In the sense that they, in the early '80s kind of stop recording studio albums or you know or they stopped releasing studio albums they they certainly kept trying to make them uh in the early 80s but that was sort of the deepest part of jerry's addiction that was kind of the deepest part of of phil lesh's addiction as well um and and other band members you know it was was a rough rough time for them and they were kind of simultaneously playing these really big venues and 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 you know had building up this audience of deadheads but were also simultaneously underground and in a weird way despite playing like amphitheaters and like Madison Square Garden in New York. So in the in the 80s the tapers kind of allowed the dead to bypass mainstream music um in the sense that you know the dead had all these new songs that they were playing live in the early 80s and you know didn't have it didn't didn't have their act together enough to like record them and put them out so the Deadheads kind of did that for them and then when the album itself finally came out which was In the Dark in 1987 it spawned an actual number 1 hit or not a number 1 hit a top 10 hit Touch of Grey um but the Deadheads all knew that song already and are already you know they can already sing along with every every word by the day the album comes out you know not because it's leaked but because the Dead have just been playing that music and that was really symbolic in in a lot of ways that they were working outside of the, the, the structures of, of the record industry and I think that granted a lot of other bands sort of the freedom to be able to you know say oh yeah we, we you can develop songs live and they can have this whole other existence that doesn't have anything to do with studio recordings um which and is let's let's hear some, kind a of a bit. dangerous attitude in some ways but yeah
1: yeah, well, let's hear a little taste of The Dead live. This is the first attempt. This was the commercial attempt to capture The Dead's magic live on their album Live Dead. This is a snippet from the middle of Dark Star, one of Jerry's solos.
3: You and I while we can
1: And that was Darkstar from Live Dead. And, and you know, I, as someone who's not a Dead fan but has worked to appreciate their music, I've come to enjoy that album. And I do think it does a fair job of capturing the music, the magic of them live. But I have to agree with the consensus of Deadheads that Dick's picks, um, which were put together by a fan and Taper, well, I don't think he was a taper. He was just an archivist of other people's tapes for the most part, uh, who became part of the Dead organization and then put together these compilations of the best ofs, best shows that he had heard. Uh, tell us a little bit about Dick Lavada, love Yeah, tape.
2: sure. But first, I want to defend Live Dead, and and I think a lot of Dead—that's a lot of Deadheads' favorite Dead album—and for me, that's still the, the the place you should start with the Grateful Dead is the Dark Star on Live Dead. That's a piece of classic. Live Grateful Dead from the Fillmore West from 1969, and really fantastic stuff. They recorded four nights, they picked out the highlights, and that's... uh, I think that you don't get much better representation of Live Grateful Dead than Live Dead. Uh, Dick... Was somebody who would heard Live Dead and had heard their other early live albums and wanted to hear more. Could, he could tell that that stuff was 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 jammed out and that it was was different every night. And he also, for that matter, was a very early Deadhead. He he saw lots of shows and at the Fillmore and the Avalon Ballroom in nineteen sixty six and 67, 67 and sixty eight, um, and then kind of went on to go do do his own hippie thing, which in his case was joining something that might be called a cult, it's hard hard to say exactly, but definitely sort of a a commune situation Um, and by the early 70s he rediscovered the dead um, with a vengeance and discovered that there was this whole world of Grateful Dead tapes that you could collect that that represented what they were live and represented the world that he knew of as the Grateful Dead, like the, the band that he had seen um, and he he said it upon himself to collect as as much as much of that as he could. and he was um like, yeah, like he said, he was not a taper himself, um like he wasn't, you know, at the shows with 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 microphones or anything like that. Um, nor was he a pot grower for that matter, but he lived in Hawaii nearby um somebody who grew a bunch of really good pot and was able to trade that pot for really good grateful dead tapes and um kind of work his way into the taper network and eventually use that same method to kind of work his way into the Grateful Dead world itself. Um, that was just a thing that he did in the 70s until, I mean, I guess he got busted doing it at some point, but um, sending large, large batches of, of really good pot to the mainland. Um, so it's kind of simultaneous. So he works his way into kind of the the, the circle of dead tapers in the late 70s where he's like, you know, you know, nowadays we take it for granted that a bet, you know, like a band like Fish or, you know, a jam band or you know any anybody that's improvising really, you can pretty much hear that performance the next day um, through either a, an official app or through BitTorrent or you know even just YouTube videos or whatever. But Dick w- was really, as far as I could tell, the first person who put his mind put their minds to doing that in the late seventies where people are sending him like whole dead tours, like within, within weeks of them happening. So at the same time, he's kind of, and then he, he starts kind of working his way into the dead. You know, I don't think this was like, he wasn't trying to climb the ladder in, in any professional suck up kind of way. He, he was just, he was Dick. He was just sending weed to people really. Like, it sounds like he was an authentically friendly head, which is something that I really liked about him. He was just so enthusiastic about everything. But eventually he becomes friends with the Dead's crew and gets a job kind of hanging out. He moves back to California and, and doesn't – I take that back. He doesn't exactly get a job. He just starts kind of hanging out at Front Street, which was the Grateful Dead's um, hangout in, uh, in in San Rafael, where their rehearsal space was, as and at their office uh, nearby. And – basically just sort of talks his way into the job as an archivist working for the dead um and and that was that was in the early 80s and then it took it took another 10 years basically to get the dicks picks out the dicks picks started coming out in 1993 which were official compilations that the dead put out with dicks dicks name branded on them
1: and and then and, and I want to segue to sort of the dead and LSD's influence on the emerging internet culture. And Dick to me is a perfect example of the way, and so is the tape trading of the way that so much of the ethos of the early internet came from via the dead and psychedelic culture that they spearheaded. And and one aspect is the tape trading, the give it away for free and actually end up making a profit at the end of the of, of the day or the end of you know the business cycle. The other thing is Dick's role as a curator of content, an aggregator and curator of content. He didn't create anything and yet he showed real value to the organization and to the greater community because he actually sat down and listened to all these tapes very carefully, had discerning taste, was an uber deadhead, you know, knew what he liked, and and his tastes were reflective, and that has become you know an entire career for many people just aggregating and curating content on the internet because the dead with their surfeit of live bootleg tapes was one of the first popular music sort of things that was an overwhelming amount of content, you know, and especially when it wasn't available. And the the other thing I want to get to is what you call uh, Jerry Garcia's philosophy of turn your back and say fuck it, Um, you know, and, and that he didn't want to engage in revolutionary struggle. He wanted to change the world or at least live in a different world. And and rather than confronting the establishment directly, he felt just turning away from it and living your own life the way you wanted to live it was a more effective form of rebellion. And you'd have to say, compared to peers like Tommy Hall or John Sinclair, who tried to directly take on the system and were crushed, that Garcia's uh, voice had a lot of life to it. And that ties into the sort of libertarian ethos of John Perry Barlow and the whole, you know, the information wants to be be free cult that not cult, but, you know, philosophy that, that he started, which, you know, we're seeing the end of that. The internet is information no longer wants to be free. Information wants to be paywalled at this point. But for a long time, that was the driving ethos of the internet. Can you talk about Barlow a little bit? And, and, oh,
2: well, sorry, uh, I was prepared. Um, I, should, I, want want to, I, I want to, to step go. back a few a few things sure. what you were saying. So that expression is actually Ken Kesey's "Turn your back and say fuck it." That came from um, an anti-war march. Actually, that was that was uh, that was something that he said um, in 1965, I think, uh, at an anti-war march in Berkeley. Sort of saying that protests, you know, engaging with the system through protests was not necessarily the the, the way to change it. The, the notion of counterculture. Is a culture within the larger culture that's changing the culture around it and, and Kesey's belief, and I think this applies to Garcia as well, was that that was the best way to do it, was to sort of go off and make your own culture that would then radiate radiate outwards Barlow is very complicated he, he's it's it's different for him. Um, I don't. I, I would not put Barlow in the turn your back, say fuck it camp. Uh, he was he was a registered Republican. He worked on Dick Cheney's, um, state senate campaign. I think it was in the early '90s, uh, and was was basically setting himself up for a career in Republican politics, which is what his dad.
1: The um, connection I was trying to make was between – there's a certain sympathy, sort of one of these instances where the left and right meet at the extreme ends of the circle, between the turn your back and say fuck it and then the hardcore libertarian uh, from the right wing uh, that John Perry Barlow epitomizes and Tommy Hall of the Elevators was another extreme yeah, right winger. So,
2: Like I said, Barlow is really complicated and there's been a lot of – there's been some pretty serious thinking about his life since, since, since he passed away. Um, in that a lot of, you know, a lot of his libertarian ideas also are really very connected to conservative economics and corporate economics and that some of the things that he, um, championed as part of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, um, have kind of had really not very great effects in terms of the the ways, uh, giant companies have extreme power, um, On the internet. I'm not saying that uh, very well, but there's an amazing piece by April Glazer that was on Slate, kind of reevaluating Barlow's legacy in terms of, you know, sort of the the, the over sort of um, internet monopolies and kind of, you know, group, you know companies like, like Facebook and and groups and, and Google having access to enormous amounts of, of personal data. So it is it is very mixed. Like like so Barlow, yeah, you're right. There is this there is kind of a turn your back and say fuck it aspect of what Barlow is doing and that everybody, you know, has rights to extreme privacy, um, which is, you know, a, libertali- a libertarian ideal. But then kind of the, one of the things that I, I hope he would Correct for where he where he to still be among the living um, would be that that was translated in a, in a in a that didn't scale that I I don't think that idea really scaled when it came he didn't foresee the corporate internet I think it's he, the
1: classic libertarian era of watching out for government power and ignoring corporate power
2: right yeah exactly that's exactly it um, and I think that's where you see I mean that that tension does start to emerge in the nineties so on one hand there's this like utopian countercultural notion of the internet. But on the other hand, there's this, you know, you know, ri- rising corporate power on it that, that, that happens exactly in parallel. Um, but, you know, there's that, that utopian anarchistic, inter- anarchistic internet still very much there and, and very much controversial. And, you know, keep you know, Barlow is right there with people like Edward Snowden and, and I'm sure would have lots of opinions about what's going on with Julian Assange these days and that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, it was a, he definitely contributed to the discussion. But let's hear what he contributed to the Grateful Dead world, which he was uh, Bob Weir's lyricist. Whereas Robert Hunter typically stepped in for Jerry Garcia or Phil Lesh to write lyrics, Barlow wrote um, songs like Cassidy from Bob Weir's first album, Ace. By
3: the
1: And that was Cassidy by Bob Weir, written uh, lyrics by John Perry Barlow from his first so- solo album. And, and Barlow not only contributed lyrics to Weir, but he and Hunter uh, had a sort of summit meeting, now, at least that's the way Barlow described it at some point that you described in your book. And they agreed that the dead in many ways was resembling a cult or a religion and then it had, you know, sacred rites and it had iconography, but they they deliberately made a decision to not proselytize in the lyrics and not have dogma which was a i think a difference between them and Tommy Hall of the Elevators who was fervently putting out dogma in every lyric to the point that it probably choked the band uh, talk a little bit about that and and how that played out the, the lack of dogma in the dead cult
2: yeah um again like like everything pretty pretty complicated and i you now i do wonder how <laughs> i do wonder how Closely, they 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 really stuck to that. You know, Barlow, Barlow is among other things a, a storyteller. <laughs> so uh, you know, I, I, I would love. I, I don't think we're ever going to. I would love to hear Hunter's account, <laughs> Hunter's account of that same meeting and, and what he <laughs> what his <laughs> takeaways were. Um, but the dead were a giant tent. You know that I think that is the result of of you know. And I, but I don't I don't doubt that Hunter and Barlow deliberately did not. You know, tr- they tried to delir- deliberately write apolitical music, and I think the result of that is the dad's music being um, in enormous, like you know, it, like I said, an enormous tent that that's open to a lot of people, and is um, on one hand has this very firm countercultural grounding, this notion that it, that, that it sort of that the, it's coming out of this transformational place that's kind of intrinsically connected to you know. Psychedelics, but also, you know, but also this kind of, you know, as apolitical it was. I think there was this very, there was still kind of this political notion in what the dead were doing, even if that politics was 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 sort of anti-politics. Um, and the result, though, is that the dead's fan base is not, you know, you can stereotype deadheads, and that's really easy because they they kind of all look this, you know, they don't all look this certain way, but there's, there's, you know, there's a cartoon character version of a deadhead that I'm sure many people can draw or many people. I don't know what, I don't know where that age is. i be curious if millennials had a stereotypical version of what a deadhead looks like, you know, long haired pot smoking, you know, layabout that only cares about Jerry. Right. Um, but, the spectrum of deadheads is so insanely vast that it's, I think it's impossible to really like actually get down to stereotype. Once you actually start talking about like political views or, you know, economic status though, I guess a lot of deadheads are probably upper middle class or, you know, but once you get into like the specifics of who these people are, that I think the, 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 the range is a lot wider than probably anybody would suspect. Um, and I think that is a result of of the band's attitudes, which you know you, you you see in the lyrics, definitely by Hunter and Barlow. But you also see in the way the band sort of carries themselves and and the issues that they do that they did um, they did address and, and did engage with, um, a lot of which were you know environmental. Um, but, you know then and to their credit, the Dead were. You know, in in the 80, in the early eighties, even in the late seventies, were were playing environmental benefits. You know, in kind of this age before climate change was really, you know, a topic that people talked about. You know, the dead were the dead were definitely on kind of the eco. You know, supporting the sort of the you know ecological causes and things like that.
1: Yeah, they didn't they didn't support every cause, but they they walked their talk on the causes that they chose to support. And I want to sort of change gears here and talk about another thread. That you pick up that was news to me. That um, the role of deadheads, particularly a guy named Chad Stickney and another better-known guy named Keith Herring, in the emergence of one of the five pillars of hip hop, graffiti culture in New York City.
2: Yeah, that was something that I, that took me by a for for a, that was a huge surprise <laughs> when that when I kind of uncovered that during during research. Um, and you know, which isn't to say you know, so Chad Stickney. Uh, was a graffiti artist, better known as L S D Ohm, who's a pretty influential graffiti artist when you when you, you know, get into kind of the, the, the nitty-gritty of the history of graffiti culture. Um, who is there kind of right at the moment that graffiti changed from people just writing their names on walls and in their handwriting into kind of these artistic statements that are sort of comic booky Um, Peter Max, actually big, big story about him in the news recently, but Peter Max, big influence on, on people like Chad. And so Chad was part of this kind of group of hippies that hung out around Central Park, the Parkies, who were also, um, also a a cross country LSD connection with the Brotherhood of Eternal Love and are actually, to tie this back to what I was talking about at the very beginning, um, are kind of the way that you see that the Brotherhood of Eternal Love operated continuously, even though they allegedly got busted. Because you see it in people like Chad, who did, who passed his connection on to the next person, to the next person, to the next person, through this kind of un- continuous underground culture where psychedelics were part of it, but not the only thing going on. So graffiti was this huge part of New York underground culture in the 70s that was actually, you know, wasn't, middle upper-class white hippies was, you know, there were definitely middle upper-class white hippies involved, but was black kids and Latino kids and, and, you know, pretty much, pretty much any, it was an art form for, for outsiders of all kinds. And it was important for Chad and for the people after him in, in kind of this acid dealing graffiti part to really represent that they were very conscious of being like, psychedelic graffiti writers that were kind of representing the sunshiny part of the psychedelic world in the midst of kind of grimy, tough, rough and tumble New York city in the mid seventies that we, you know, we think of New York in the mid seventies as, 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 you know, like, you know, for, you know, (laughs) Gerald Ford to New York dropped dead or, you know, whatever that expression is. But, you know, we think of New York in the seventies as, you know, this bombed out place, but in the core of it, you, you know, these, hippie, hippie acid dealing graffiti writers that also connected people like Basquiat, who is, you know, who is, who is friends with, um, what, who is friends with friends with that crew as well. Um, and Keith Herring, who became, who was a fine artist first and a graffiti artist second, I would say though, obviously made his name, um, making public art. Um, he was an art student and, and, and wanted to be an artist and was a, was a psychedelic head for sure. Um, There's a journal entry of his where he talks about, like, um, basically his entire kind of visual language coming to him in the course of of one of his early important acid trips, you know, when he was a kid, like, out in Pennsylvania. Um, And for Keith Haring, I think psychedelics – and he became a huge deadhead as well in high school and in college. Um, Before he moved to New York, the dead were kind of the core of his – His musical world. And I think Psychedelics and the Dead opened him up in maybe the same way that they opened up the graffiti guys to this idea that, you know, that that, that the boundaries of of what he wanted to do were were wider and further out than than he first suspected. And for him, he wanted, he was interested in making art, but he didn't want to be inside, like, the gallery world or, like, the, the fine art school world. Like, he, that's the path he started on. And I think being kind of a psychedelic thinker opened him up into you know painting in, in in subway stations and and you know painting in in discos and you know there are these amazing paintings where he did you know amazing installations where he did like body paint on Grace Jones and stuff like that and I think you really to me that's you see Keith Haring as this really three three four five six dimensional psychedelic artist
1: <laughs> and even his deals with companies like Swatch um, I think. Were possibly influenced by seeing how the Grateful Dead navigated capitalism and corporate working with corporate entities to get their message out. Um, but let's let's hear another song. We're going to hear uh, "Hello Sunshine" from one of Dick's picks. We're kind of off on the music and the topics, but this is this is one of Dick. This is the song that Dick Lovatella chose to be the first song on his first compilation of Grateful Dead tapes. Hello, oh,
2: sunshine. here
1: comes here comes sunshine. Right. Yeah, here comes sunshine. Sorry. And that was "Here Comes Sunshine" by the Grateful Dead from the Volume One of Dick's Picks. But let's get back. Uh, we've got covered uh, some ground to cover. I want to talk about the jam band scene and Fish. And I, I think at this point, I want to get to one point about Fish, which you know they're a, a band that came up in Vermont, probably more influenced by Frank Zappa than the Dead musically. Maybe um, definitely Dead influenced. They built their own sort of mini audience, and 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 you tell that story pretty well in the book. But then when, the dead, when Jerry Garcia dies, uh, Fish inherits the dead's parking lot scene, which isn't necessarily music fans. Tell us a little bit about that and the conflict that the dead had with the parking lot scene and, and what happened when the dead disappear and that parking lot scene uh, spirals out into, into many whirlpools.
2: Yeah, so the, the parking lot scene was this kind of enormous thing that emerged around the dead kind of over the course of the 80s and the 90s that became this, you know, drug bazaar, basically, that was sort of loosely connected to the dead. They're no, not loosely connected, it was, into, it was pretty intimately connected with the dead. It, the dead kind of created this language that they used, that, you know, the, the, it was kind of this, you know, a certain certain kind of slang, a certain kind of vernacular, a certain kind of... Social cultural feel that became this place that that you know you can call it Shakedown Street when it's when it's outside a Grateful Dead show or outside a Fish show it's still called Shakedown Street but I think extends you know kind kind of far beyond that and which is kind of where Fish come in in that they you know like you said Zappa was probably in some ways more of a musical influence on them but again they picked up this vocabulary from the Dead in terms of the way live shows are structured or even just the way touring is structured and the way that you build that audience and so that they even without necessarily sounding like the dead which i don't think they do very often they were able to communicate in that language of the dead kind of picking up on like almost like like almost on like the syntax without the actual without the language without the words or something like that which i think is really a lot of why Deadheads picked up on fish. They, they were sort of picking up on that sort of structural stuff. Um, and the parking lot scene was incredibly complicated for the dead. They, they did not really like that aspect of, of people showing up and following them around without being, without really, without going into the shows or without, you know, without like a really deeper interest in the music other than that the music was the background of this, this, this counterculture, which is, you know, in some ways they, they kind of wrote that script themselves. Um, cause you see so many parallels between the counterculture of the hate Ashbury and kind of this swirling messy chaos that, that kind of was around the dead in the eighties and nineties. There's so many of the same patterns and, and even maybe preventable things that happened at that point. Um, and it was just out of the, you know it, it's it was kind of out of the Dead's hands in some ways. They they tried to control it. They tried to corral it in different ways. They banned camping at a certain point. They tried to ban vending, but it was just it was just it was almost separate from them. By I would say by probably by by the time Touch of Grey came out in '87, and um, they became like a, a top ten pop band on MTV for a minute. I think by that point it was it was already too too far gone to control in any in any meaningful way um and really you can kind of just say it was you know the dead spawned it but it was, it was really its own and is its own sub segment of of the american population is this 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 anarchistic <laughs> counter subculture and and when jerry died you know the the place for that Thing to physically manifest became around fish shows, and you know that parking lot scene existed around fish shows before that. You know, and maybe a slightly smaller level, but it definitely got noticeably bigger after after Garcia died. And you know, fish didn't like that any more than the dead did. Um, and that, but they were kind of locked into their own thing by then. At that point, too, and it was certainly no easier for them to control. Than it was for the dead, except for the fact that Fish were never a top ten pop band as much as they, as yeah. much as they sometimes seem to try.
1: And and you focus on Fish, but you do acknowledge that there were several other bands: the Incredible String Cheese incident and um, Soul Hat here in Texas, that that were were also eddies coming off of the Grateful Dead Warpole. And another one was the Burning Man festival, which you link really well with the the Silicon Valley connection. The rock festival ethos that the grateful dead carried on and and the the you know all night camping partying and and the uh electronic dance music scene that emerged at the same time and you connect all that back to the grateful dead as well it's um give you a quick time to comment on that connection if we can but we don't have much time to cover it
2: sure i mean i think that connection is pretty just much of a piece with the ongoing notion of ca- of California counterculture and the way that continued to evolve um, in the 70s and into the 80s and into the 90s where the dead were oh you know as long as the dead existed they were always a thread in what was going on in in California you, you know you, you couldn't probably unless you were being very intentionally exclusive about it you probably really couldn't start any kind of public organization any public or semi-public, like arts group in California without having a couple of deadheads in, within spitting distance, um, so yeah, the, the, the deadheads were never very far away when 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 Burning Man launched, though not an expl- certainly not an explicit dead thing um, in its early days, but really you know almost yeah I would say explicitly psychedelic in its early days. The first Burning Man flyer um, referenced Mary pranksters and re- referenced kind of the sort of the the, the the history of of the counterculture and kind of these zo- zone crossing parties, which is which is I think one of the phrases that they the early the Burning Man organizers associated with it. So yeah, it's really part of that continuity of 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 psychedelic counterculture um, that never stopped after the sixties. And I think that's what the Dead identified with more than the Deadheads. I think the Dead identified with this thing that can. I think the Dead would probably identify with what happened at the early Burning Man's more than they would, like, you know, the 1991, 92 Burning Man's in the desert, I think are probably more in line with what Jerry Garcia was thinking when he talked about hip economics than, like, the dead parking lot. I think he was, you know, he wasn't envisioning, like, what would happen in The Grateful Dead. He was envisioning a larger counterculture, where the dead were one piece of it.
1: Yeah,
3: and and
2: one thing... and they ended up becoming the mainstream of that, and that was that was what they or what he didn't like. I don't know how the other guys felt necessarily. Yeah.
1: And and the the fate of Burning Man as it's evolved, you know, from an underground psychedelic festival in the early '90s to becoming a really glaring example of the hyper capitalism of, <laughs> yeah. of 2019 um, is is fascinating and and shows so much of. Both the wisdom and the mistakes that people like John Perry Barlow were making when they were philosophizing, you know, how the Internet should run. Not that they were architects of the technology, but I think Barlow's got to be one of the top 10 thinkers who influenced how people thought about the Internet in the first uh, 10 years of its emergence. And yeah. thread, no, uh, but I, I would love to hear you on that one, but I want to get to one other point before we run out of time, which is you do a great job of documenting the LSD black market and talk throughout the book about the manufacturing and the suppliers. And towards the end of the book, you you sort of reveal, um, you know, I had read 10, or 15 years ago about how LSD supplies cratered after the fall of the grateful dead, that a a few big uh, cooks were busted. Um, you know, one who had bought out a missile silo in Kansas and turned it into a giant LSD factory. But you talk about a figure that you call dealer Mcdope who might've been the ultimate source of the raw material essential to make acid throughout this era. Can you talk a little bit about that story?
2: Yeah, I mean, and that's one that, like, I wish that I could tell you more. I wish I knew more details about it, um, honestly. Uh, Dealer McDope is somebody, honestly, I don't, I don't know his, um, I don't know Dealer McDope's real name. Uh, Dealer McDope is somebody that several different people told me about, um, using several different ways to describe the guy, but it was the same guy. Um, and Dealer McDope is the phrase that that uh, Mark McLeod, who's the uh, who's a great the great blotter art collector um, in San Francisco, used to describe him. So I I, I went with that one. But yes, yeah, so also he a was,
1: character uh, in the Freak Brothers Gilbert right? Well, that,
0: the that's where brothers. that's
2: where that's where Mark picked the name up. You know, and I think you know Mark's implication is that you know this guy's exploits were similar to what Dealer McDope did in in in. The Gilbert Shelton adventures, another great Texas connection there, um, but McDope, you know, or whoever he actually was, was so the the, the raw materials for LSD um, were basically you couldn't they, they couldn't be manufactured in the United States um, and very tightly controlled in Europe, and there was kind of this group of people supposedly throughout Europe who were able to liberate that stuff. And, and redirect it to the, the, the people making LSD. And over the course of the 90s, my understanding is that there was this, you know, core group of people that one by one either died or dropped out or whatever. And so by the late 90s, McDope is kind of the only guy left from that original posse, at least in, at least in this telling. You know, and it's like it's like I said, I don't know his name. I don't know with 100, you know, I know. Pretty certainly that this is how it happened, but it's hard to hard to quantify these things necessarily, other than by looking at the stats about the, the LSD drop off in the early 21st century, which definitely happened. Um, So I don't know, actually, when the last person to drop off before McDope was, you know, but it was, you know, the implication is that, you know, he was the last man standing for a few, at least, you know, I would say maybe a half decade in there. But then you know, there's lots of different factors. It's certainly he's not the only reason why LSD disappeared in that era. There, you know, part of it was um 9-11 happened, which changed the, you know, the global security state in a way that made things like smuggling large quantities of LSD precursor much more difficult. Um you know, you you referenced you alluded to Leonard Picard, who is the uh, the the guy who got busted who's known as the Missile Silo Chemist, which is a really—you <laughs> might be surprised to learn—a really complicated case. Um, and you know, Picard still—you know—he he actually just wrote a couple years ago after my book came out, or maybe as my book was, maybe as heads was coming out, he wrote a huge book called *The The Rose of Paracelsus*, which is um, like eight, maybe like eight hundred, nine hundred pages written in in this very flowery kind of Victorian style um, him kind of recounting his adventures, possibly metaphorically, possibly, possibly literally everything is, is sort of encrusted in this, in this language that's makes it a little bit hard to tell. Um, but he kind of tells a little bit more of the story, you know, again, if you're to believe him and, you know, he certainly has his own version of, of events that, you know, suits him to present you know, some of which are probably how it happened, and some of which are maybe his version of how it happened. Um, but he, he, you know, he doesn't necessarily. I, I wouldn't say there's anybody in his book that I would point out. Oh yeah, he's talking about McDope, but he's the, the story in his book is not totally dissimilar to the stories that 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 I heard. So it's everything is fuzzy, everything is complicated. It's you know, so McDope was the, the clearest narrative way that I could that I. Was able to find to really illustrate that last part of the story, or yeah, not? And, or that last part of the 20th century story. And certainly, things have 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 you know it, the situation yeah. has changed as the Renaissance as the Fargo.
1: to evolve. And and I I really thought you did a great job of pulling these threads together, telling a cohesive narrative. And you know, this is a story about music, the music business, art. Political organizing, technology, and true crime in a way oh, right. that very few, you know, writers uh, confront in one book. And and the fact that you pull it all together, I really feel like heads, a biography of psychedelic America by Jesse Jarno our guest, <laughs> is an essential bridge of the '60s and '70s literature uh, that's extensive on psychedelia, and then connects to the 21st century. Terrence McKenna influenced, and McKenna is something you talk about a lot in the book. And we didn't even get to this book is <laughs> full of great, amazing stories about psychedelic America. And I just want to thank you for writing it and for coming on the show to talk about it.
2: Uh, my pleasure, Nate. Thank you so much for for having me, and thank you just so much for reading it and and having being curious about it. I I, it, I appreciate that a lot.
1: Yeah, reading. I mean, LSD is uh, has been a big part of American history and and my life. I've had several bad brushes with it never... <laughs> and uh, we'll talk about that on another show but but and, to me it's and, yeah and just
2: i just want lessons you know this book is long <laughs> you know it's you know it's it's definitely doorstop volume as they say but um i wish i could you know there's so many pockets of psychedelic culture that i wish i could have documented and you know maybe maybe i'll get a chance to do that at some point but it it, you know the dead are the center of this book but it it, it went so much further and still goes so much further than them um and and i think that's important to remember now and kind of this you know when psychedelics are kind of at the edge of of legalization maybe or at the edge of therapeutic legalization that there's this amazing and continuous lineage of fantastic weirdos doing really interesting stuff with psychedelics off the grid and on whatever grid or whatever shape or form or structure they create and um they're still out there (laughs) and that's i i that makes me happy
1: Yes, me too. And, and thanks for coming on the show, Jesse. And I hope to have you back to talk about Yola Tingo sometime soon. Yeah,
2: totally. Anyway, right. thanks, Dave.
0: Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic. And check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at LetItRollCast. Come back Thursdays for our new show focusing on Mike Judge's Tales from the Tour Bus and next Monday when author R.J. Smith joins the show to discuss his James Brown biography, The One. A biography of psychedelic America is published by Decapo Press, and you can support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.